Hey, I'm Robert Pearson, and this is Follow the Leader, and we're doing another blue-collar Bible scholar study. Uh, today, we're jumping in, finally, into the text of the Bible, the book of Genesis. We're going to start at the beginning, and I'll try and get at least one book of the Bible, uh, maybe two, every week. We'll see how that goes. Uh, all right. A uh, quick note on stuff I said recently on the thing. I was wrong on a couple notes. Israel was founded in the 1940s, not the 1960s. Uh, that's my mistake. I went to public school. What do you expect? And then uh, I mentioned the canon being uh, decided in... One of the things that were decided in the Council of Nicaea, that's wrong. Council of Nicaea was about the Arian heresies. Uh, Council of Trent is the one that establishes the Bible canon in uh, 15-something, 100. So they're already like translating the Bible into English by then. And uh, one thing to remember about those uh, councils is they're not prescribing doctrine for everybody so much as they are describing what had been taught at that time. So they all got together after this Arian heresy stuff started to run around, and this guy saying that, no, Jesus was a created being who was not eternal, which is just verbatim not. It's the exact opposite of what's in Scripture. You, it's there in plain Greek that he's eternal and not a created being. Whatever. So, the uh, the council, all these bishops get together and they look at each other and they're like, we've all been teaching that he's eternal son of God, right? Both God and man on the same page. Yeah, it's just that guy? Alright, yeah. Yeah, that's what we thought. Get out of here, that guy. Go away. And that's that's basically every council. Um, there's always shady politics going on whenever you have that much uh, power and those many people of influence in one place. But, in general, that's the principle behind all of the different councils. So it's not, we will only use these books of the Bible. There was a question over it, and there was enough argument and conjecture that they all get together and decide. They go, hold on, here's the Bible that we've all been using. Everybody agree this is the one? Uh, yeah, okay, good. That's, that's what I thought. That's what we thought. We're on the same page, more or less. Okay. All right, let's just make it official. We'll make a proclamation, put a date on it, you know, make it all fancy, and then send it out to everybody to go, hey, guys, yeah, we're all on the same page. Chill out. Chill out. Uh, looking at them as prescriptive exercises is kind of wrong-headed. They were to describe what was already being done, not to decide new things. Uh, starting with the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, uh, the, there's a, a big question about, do we still need to be Jews and then become Christians? How do Gentiles become Christians? We've only been doing this for five chapters. Uh, do they have to become a Jew and then become a Christian after that? What's the deal? Uh, and then they hear Paul's been telling people that they need to become Jews. And they're like, all right, all right, let, get Paul in here. We'll get on the same page. And uh, it's at that point in time, Paul's like, no, I haven't, I haven't taught that at all. So they're like, what have you taught? And he, he tells them, and they're like, yeah, all right, that's right. We're on the same page. Ah, okay, cool. And they make an official announcement. They go, look, here's all you got to do. And they establish what's basically the Noahic covenant for, uh, for, Jews, uh, for non-Jewish Christians, uh, Gentile Christians. And they're just like, just don't eat blood. Don't eat stuff sacrificed to idols. And, uh, you know, don't murder each other and stuff, right? Okay, yeah. All right, go live your life. Be, be a Christian. Love Jesus. All, that, all the good things. Anyway. Uh, so yeah, the Council of Trent is when the, the canon is actually established, but it does show up as early as uh, 300s BC. 
Uh, you've got a guy, Marcion, in uh, 14, uh, 140 A.D., sorry, B.C., 140 A.D., who uh, starts having uh, the idea of a New Testament canon, uh, but he's later just called a heretic, and he didn't have all the books in there. And then uh, Origen, uh, in like the three-something, 360s-ish, is doing his thing, Origen of Alexandria, and he's got, he makes reference to almost all 27 books of the New Testament in his writings. Uh, whether he's citing it or he's mentioning a letter that Paul wrote to some people, he's got a reference to almost all 27 books. It's clear that they're being used in the church abroad, and everybody kind of agrees that these are all the things we hold to be authoritative. Authoritative. And, uh, and then, bump, 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 bump. yeah, so then uh, Athanasius, I think, is the other guy who... Um, a little while after Origen actually writes up um, in like three, three to four hundred A.D. Uh, a list that includes all twenty-seven books of the New Testament. Uh, he's the first one to actually write a list of things and um, use the. I think Origen is the first one to use the word canon in regards to it. Anyway, so yeah, I was I was wrong about that. Moving on, back to Genesis, uh, the beginning, a very good place to start. I'm going to do an overview of the book. I can't cover everything. There's so much good stuff in it. Uh, but this is a very crass flyover to get you a big picture, right? The, the jigsaw puzzle analogy is so perfect for this. This is the picture on the box for the jigsaw puzzle, you know, the, the Lisa Frank with the rainbow and the unicorns. And then you dump the box over, and each piece is like, you know, the size smaller than a dime. And you're like, I don't know how to put this together. But you've got the picture on the box that you can go, all right, well, let's just find the edges, and then we'll start looking at, okay, this kind of looks like part of a unicorn hoof, and you just start sorting the pieces, right? That's how you do Bible study. That's how you attack any really elaborate mental concept when you're trying to understand it, is you need that flyover view of what is the big picture here. And then you can pick up all the little detail pieces and slowly see where they fit in the big picture. So, there it is. Now, uh, let's just jump into it then. Genesis, uh, written around the 1400s BC, somewhere between 1440, 1500s, uh, Moses takes the people of Israel out of captivity. So some people say he wrote it when he went to the land of Midian before the Exodus. Uh, some people think he wrote it during the Exodus, wandering around the wilderness. He had 40 years of just wandering in circles every day. So, uh, the dude had nothing but time. So, um, I say so a lot. All right. I say that a lot too. Anyway, God creates heavens and the earth in six days. The start of the book, right where it starts out, God creates heavens and earth in six days. And, uh, he's like, all right, this is pretty cool. Makes animals makes uh, all the grass and trees and stuff and he makes animals and then he makes people and he makes, first off, he just makes a guy and after witnessing the horrors of bachelor life he says, it's not good for man to be alone I don't know how this guy wandering around naked in a garden by himself wound up with pizza boxes and dirty clothes everywhere, but uh, this, this is not happening and he makes Eve and uh, so, they're both hanging out everything's cool, we don't know how long that lasts, but you know, it lasts for a little while I guess and then, they get stupid, then there's some drama, and God kicks them out after cursing them. Man's cursed to work all of his life until he dies, and work is going to be miserable and uncomfortable and suck, and it's just, it's, it's not going to be fun. 
And the woman who was created to be, um, you know, to create life and to help man, well, now you're going to do nothing but fight with your husband and raising kids is going to hurt and it's going to suck. Uh, that's awesome. So uh, we got to deal with it. So they get kicked out and it's nothing but drama from there on out. They, they got two kids. Cool. One of them murders the other. Not cool. And that guy goes off to have kids that basically wind up doing nothing but murdering and stealing from each other. And their other kid, Seth, has uh, his kids pretty quickly start screwing everything up also. And then we get a genealogy down to Noah. And God's looking at the whole planet and he's just like, ah, guys, guys. And so he, uh, he's like, I just, everybody sucks. That guy's cool though. So he talks to Noah and says, look, I'm going to drown everyone. I need you to make a boat, like a, like a really big boat. And so Noah goes, well, uh, okay, it's going to take some time though. And uh, I don't, I don't know if it's because Noah's a bit of a slouch, or it's because it was a giant boat and he didn't have power tools. Uh, but it takes him a hundred years to make a boat. The specifications are a football field and a half long, by uh, a half a football field tall and a half a football field wide. And uh, that's that's where they stay. They uh, they stay in the boat. God brings a bunch of animals for him to put in the boat, and they stay in the boat, and it rains. So it only rains. 40 days and 40 nights, but the floodwaters don't actually recede for like a year. They're in this boat, shoveling manure, waiting for the water to go down. It's not fun. So what we have is uh, Noah gets off the ark finally, and his three kids, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, kind of restart civilization from there. Um, Ham gets stupid, and his line of Canaan is cursed. And that's where you get the Canaanites, the land of Canaan. Uh, the, the Hittites and stuff are all in that area, and they eventually get wiped out in the, the subsequent course of things. But that's, that's, uh, that's looking at it a little far. Uh, so we, we go from the line of Shem, from which we get the name Semites. Uh, I'm fairly certain that's accurate. Uh, it's been a while since I looked this up. This is A lot of stuff is off the top of my head from what I remember from Bible college and uh, what I can uh, prepare on my lunch break or whatnot. This is off the cuff, but that's part of what keeps it engaging and simple. Because uh, you can get bogged down in the weeds in this just all day, every day. I'm going to stop that wiggling for you guys since I'm not driving anywhere right now. All right. Um, so we eventually get down to Abraham, who is, uh, I forget how many generations removed from Shem. And God shows up to Abraham and he's like, hey, Wander off in the desert. I got something cool for you. And Abraham's like, eh, I'm not doing anything right now. Sure. He, uh, he wanders off into the desert, takes God at his word, and gets blessed for it. And he just hangs out in the desert. Chill. He has a little drama here and there with the Egyptians and stuff, lying about his, uh, his wife, and uh, accidentally causing God to bring plagues on the local inhabitants. It, it's a whole deal. Uh, eventually he has a kid named, I. well, eventually God shows up and says, hey, yeah, I know you're like 90, but you're going to have a kid. And he goes, uh, all right, I guess. And his wife goes, what? Well, he has a kid, a uh, kid named Isaac, and uh, they hang out for a while. And then it's, it's kind of significant because God shows up to Abraham and says, hey, I need you to sacrifice your son to me. And this is called the testing of Abraham. 
and there's there's a lot of drama around it. I'll I'll mention it later, more later. But just the 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 story though, Abraham then takes Isaac and he's like, hey, let's uh, let's go, and we're gonna go sacrifice up on the mountain over there. And uh, Isaac says, okay, sure, all right, and uh, yeah, so we bring wood and uh, a knife, and uh, we're gonna go sacrifice. And as they get closer, he looks around, and goes, hey, we didn't uh, we didn't bring any animals, Dad. What's, uh, what are we going to sacrifice? Huh? And Abraham says, don't worry, son. God will provide. God will provide. They get up on the mountain. And uh, then he, he ties Isaac up and uh, lays him down on the, the altar that he made. And Isaac's like, all right, uh, what's, what's the deal, Dad? Uh, everything cool? I, I, I've been cleaning my room like you asked. And Abraham grabs a knife and uh, gets ready to go and God stops him and provides a ram that they then sacrifice and uh, bring Isaac back down the mountain. That's the testing of Abraham. I'll, I'll throw some more details out about it later, but it's it's a whole deal. So Isaac then uh, continues to live his life. Abraham dies of old age and now Isaac's just chilling out, wandering around the desert. He gets himself a wife from his uh, father's family uh, and they just they're just chilling in the desert. A little drama here and there about digging wells and stuff. People chasing them off. And uh, he eventually has two kids, Esau and Jacob. And the whole, the whole family's nothing but drama. Esau is a big, surly, manly man who uh, doesn't care about a lot of stuff. And uh, I, Jacob is a pretty chill, pretty chill dude. Hangs out around camp, hangs out with his mom a lot, enjoys cooking. Well, uh, one day Esau shows up and he's like, I'm starving, I'm going to die. Give me some of that soup you're making. And Jacob goes, well, give me your birthright. Because as the firstborn of the, the family, he doesn't explain it to him, obviously. I'm explaining it to you because you might not know. The, the firstborn of the family is the one who gets a double portion. So you got two kids, you divvy up your belongings in three, and the oldest kid gets twice as much as everybody else does, as the, you know, the other kid. Or, you know, if you had five or whatever, you, you always divvy up for, for one more than the kids, and the double portion goes to the oldest. Well, with that comes the responsibility of being like your family's high priest. Because uh, this is well before any established uh, religion of any kind that we know. God showed up to Abraham and said, hey, bud, you and me, let's make a deal. And uh, you just trust me. And I got some cool stuff set up for you. And Abraham's like, I'll take that. Cool. And uh, Isaac, then God, Abraham dies and uh, God comes to Isaac and is like, hey, it's you and me, kid. We'll make this happen. And Isaac's like, yeah, all right, good deal. So his firstborn son Esau then would have had that same deal. God would eventually come to him and say, hey, you and me, let's make some stuff happen. Just follow me, kid. I'll take care of you. And uh, instead of that, Esau was like, ah, soup. Soup's good. I don't care about that stuff. Well, eventually he realized what he gave up and got mad and wants to kill Jacob. And Jacob's like, would you? No, what? And he just splits because he's not a big tough guy. He, he can't fight him. He's just not going to deal with it. And he runs off and uh, Esau is mad or whatnot. And they, they have a little drama. They make up later when they're adults. And Jacob wanders around, eventually gets himself uh, a wife, and then gets another wife. It was two for the price of one over at Laban's discount wife house. And uh, read the story. That joke will make sense in time. So Jacob has two wives, one he likes, one he doesn't like as much. And he starts having a bunch of kids between these two wives because it's like a competition now because they're sisters. And um, they just... It's just not a good way to live, man. Anyway, so he, they make it work, I guess. 
And uh, that's where the 12 tribes of Israel come from, is Jacob at one point is up on a mountain, and this angel shows up, and they wrestle. And they fight, and they wrestle, and the angel gets the upper hand and pops uh, Jacob's hip out of socket. And he's like, bam, I won, bro. And Jacob says, no, no, you didn't. I'm not letting go. I'm not, I'm not going to let go. I don't care if you dislocated my hip. I, I'm not going to let go. You're going to stay here. We're going to stay here together. And eventually the angel's like, look, just, you have to let go now. Please, please let go. And Abraham's, uh, or Jacob's, sorry, Jacob's like, nah, I don't feel like it. I'll, how about this? Always, always looking to make a deal. He says, look, if you bless me, then I'll let you go. And the angel's like, all right, I can respect that. And he, uh, he gives him a blessing, and Abraham, or Jacob, I don't know why I keep doing that. Jacob limps back to camp, and his name is now Israel, because he's wrestled with God and man and prevailed. Because he had, I forgot, Jacob had some drama around digging wells and stuff, too, and getting chased off of them by the, by the locals. He'd dig a well, and the locals would show up and be like, sweet well, bro, it's ours now. And they'd chase him off, and he kept doing that, and kept digging wells, uh, until eventually he got far enough away that they left him alone. He's like, ah... Finally. So, uh, one of those kids he has that he really likes is Joseph. And Joseph is the favorite. Nobody likes Joseph because he's the favorite. And all the older kids don't like him. He was the youngest at the time. And uh, they're like, you know what? We're just going to kill him. And instead of killing him, they eventually were like, well, why kill him when we could get money? So they sell him as a slave to a bunch of foreigners. And then they just told their dad they killed him. And he winds up being sold by those uh, Midianites into the land of Egypt. And he's a slave in Egypt. And this is the guy from Joseph, the coat of many colors, the Technicolor dream coat or whatever. That's, that's this guy. Uh, that's, that's Joseph. So Joseph is hanging out in Egypt and winds up, just puts his nose to the grindstone. He's like, look, it's a bad situation. I'm going to make the best out of it I can. And we'll just, uh, we'll just make the best of it, guys. So he's really honest, he works hard, and uh, God blesses everything that he does. So eventually he winds up in charge of the whole freaking place. Uh, he starts out as a slave, uh, gets arrested under some false pretenses, and then he's so useful in the dadgum prison, he works his way up in the prison taking care of stuff. And then eventually one of the prisoners who got arrested for a little while, then got let out, was friends with Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh needs a dream interpreted, and uh, the cupbearer's like, I know a guy. Let me, yeah, he's in prison right now, but you should bring it here. He, he does that kind of stuff. He did it for me. He's a cool cat. And Joseph shows up and just humbly was like, look, God's the one who tells me what the dreams are, but let's see what we can do. And he tells Pharaoh what's the dream mean, and because they're, uh, the dreams predict famine, so we're going to have really good years, and then we're going to have famine years. And uh, so what you need to do is you need to have somebody run your kingdom, we're going to store up uh, you know, a portion of all the grain that everybody harvests during these good years. All the extra, we're going to save it, and then we can sell it back to the people during the famine years so we can, uh, we can make a buck and everybody's not going to starve to death. And uh, Pharaoh's like, it's a good idea. It's your job, bud. You've got it. You're in charge now. Over everybody but me. And so Joseph does his deal, and in the middle of the famine, lo and behold, these 11 idiots come rolling in one day, coming to buy grain. And he looks over, and it's his brothers that sold him into slavery. And he's like, 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he messes with them a little bit, and eventually he's like, ah, I'm just messing with you. I'm your bro. And they, they freak out, and uh, they bring his dad in, and that's how the uh, all of the Israelites wind up in Egypt for them to then come out of Egypt for the Exodus. That's, that's later. That's the sequel. That's in the sequel in the Exodus. Right now we're just in Genesis. So... <clears throat> That's, uh, that's the way it's set up is they, that's kind of where the book ends is they're living in Egypt and, uh, the book ends at, I think, Jacob's funeral as he, he gives a blessing. So Joseph isn't one of the tribes of Israel. His two sons are, uh, Manasseh and Ephraim. And interesting though, his, Joseph's wife is Egyptian. So Ephraim and Manasseh are half Egyptian tribes of Israel, which is something that doesn't ever get brought up, but it's a thing. That's pretty cool. So the other two tribes that miss out are Reuben, because he got with his dad's concubine at one point, because he's an idiot. And then Simeon and Levi screwed up because they murdered a town. To be fair, the town's mayor had raped their sister, but they, they still murdered a town. Uh, it was a whole thing. So they lost their inheritance um, as, as tribes. So you got uh, two, three down, and then... I forget how we're back up. We're back down to 12. I forget exactly the numbers. But anyway, that's, that's a whole thing. So the, the tribe of Levi actually winds up being the Levites that are the priesthood later uh, because of a, an anecdote with Moses. We'll, we'll get there. We'll, we'll get there. It all comes there. So I skipped over a lot of nuance, a lot of detail. There's, you could talk for hours on this book. It's awesome. So here are the common high points that come up consistently. Uh, as you read, these are the, the contentious things that are going to come up as, as you read. First off, the creation account, right? That's the biggest thing that sticks out for everybody when they're talking about Genesis. Uh, there are, there, the argument that I've heard are two creation accounts. The chapter one, God creates heaven and earth in six days. Chapter two, God creates the heavens and the earth and kind of glosses over it. And then it spends a lot of time on him making man. And the argument is they contradict. No, no, they don't. It's, it's a follow-up of the same account with less detail on creating heavens and earth and more detail on creating man and woman and then the, the subsequent drama after that. There's not a contradiction, Pendulette. It's No, they're, they're the same. They've been the same for centuries. Everybody's, this is how everybody reads it. Everybody's read it that way. Now, the... The biggest arguments come in the age of the earth and how you exactly apply the, the six days of, of creation and stuff. Uh, full disclosure, I am a young earth creationist. God created the heavens and earth in six days. Uh, science, the, the science around evolution and their dating of the planet is kind of sketchy. And they, I've, it feels like they're playing three-card Monty as they're giving out details and stuff. And I don't like it. Uh, carbon dating relies on knowing how much carbon was there to begin with assuming your carbon-14 levels are constant throughout eternity, and then working the dates backwards, which seems a little off, and they'll randomly date things that have a known date of, you know, only 100 years or so that, you know, are millions and billions of years or 10,000 years or more. It gets, it gets a little shady when they're doing the carbon dating stuff. I just feel like they're hiding the ball. I don't like it. Um, anyway, and I'm, I'm an electrician, and I've got a family, and I just don't have time to 
to dig into all of that, and it doesn't affect my day-to-day life, whether or not I believe in evolution. It does have severe theological ramifications, which is the main reason that I adhere to young earth creationism in my uh, framework. Anyway, so here we go. Uh, For people who believe the earth is super, super old, you can't do that and read Genesis as the inspired word of God. You just can't. Unless, and so there's some ways you can read it and understand it to to fill that. Uh, One of them is called the day-age theory. The word for day, yom in Hebrew, refers to uh, a couple of different ideas, and it's almost identical to the English word day. In my father's day, it took three days to cross the prairie, traveling only during the day. In that, you have a 12-hour period of daylight, you have a 24-hour period of of time, and you also have an age or epoch or era. That's the way the word yom is used in Hebrew. Pretty, pretty direct translation. The thing is, uh, so the argument becomes, well, the word day doesn't necessarily mean a 24-hour period of time. It could also be a really long age or epoch. Okay. In the example I gave you in English, it took you a second, but you knew exactly what I meant. The words around it And the way I framed the sentence let you know that I wasn't talking about my father's 24-hour period. It was in my father's day, time, and age. It was clear from the words around it, from the way the sentence was constructed, which one I meant. It could mean all three, but the most likely meaning and what was the obvious meaning was the correct one, right? Now... The word yom is that way. When you look up everywhere the word yom appears in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Old Testament, whenever it shows up with a number, it means a 24-hour period of time. Whenever the word yom shows up with the reference to evening or morning or evening and morning, it means a 24-hour period of time. And the interesting thing is when you look at the creation account, there was evening and there was morning a first day. God created the such and such and he saw that it was good. There was evening and morning a second day. There was evening and morning a third day. That's, that's the formula. It's clearly a 24-hour period of time. I, that, I'm, my bias is coming through. So I, I try, though, that's the problem that I have with the day-age theory. I, I should have delineated that a little better. So that's the day-age theory. The word yom has a lot of different meanings. A lot of solid scholars adhere to this or whatnot. Um, my problem with it is it doesn't have a systematic understanding of the word yom. If you're going to understand it as a, an age or epoch, you can't do that just for this passage and only because I, I like the earth to be older rather than younger. Uh, it needs to have a consistent logic to it. And when you look at the rest of the Old Testament, there's a very clear a use of the word yom to mean a 24-hour period of time when there's a number of days involved or uh, evening and morning is mentioned. So that's the day-age theory. Another one you can do is gap theory, where you have, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and God, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. So that's uh, Genesis 1 and 2. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, could also be rendered, and the earth became formless and void, uh, because of the way the, the Hebrew verb is structured, or the, the verb used there. And became, that means it wasn't before, and it was formless and void. It became at some point in time after it was created. 
and so there's a, a potential gap. This is called gap theory. There's a gap between verse 1 and verse 2 in Genesis chapter 1 that could be an indefinite period of time. So that's plenty of time for life to evolve spontaneously and have dinosaurs and then have the dinosaur fossils buried and then the uh, Genesis event of um, the, the Garden of Eden event. Uh, the issue with that is no Hebrew scholar ever up until, you know, 50 or 100 years ago had the, I forget how old the gap theory is, but it's, it's really young. It's only 50 or 100 years old. All of the Hebrew scholars reading the Old Testament in the original Hebrew, they born and raised speaking Hebrew, writing rabbis' notes. None of them see a gap in verse 1 and 2. That's not a proper way to understand Hebrew unless you just read a Hebrew lexicon and you skim it and you're like, what? This could mean become. Awesome. There's a gap here. Instead of going, well, how do all of the Hebrew scholars ever who speak Hebrew read this understand it? Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, so that's the, that's the problem. I, I did it again. So that's the problem with the gap theory, is it, it doesn't have any history in the oldest Hebrew scholarship. Of the people that, that breathe Hebrew, they live and breathe the Hebrew language, they don't see a gap there. That's not the way that they read those verses at all. And so when it was written by a Hebrew, for Hebrews to understand... I think we should err on the side of thinking they understood it correctly. Because they all were expecting a Messiah up until the time Jesus came, and then it's after Jesus that the newer Hebrew scholarship that, that's post-Christian is all, oh, well, you know, maybe he's coming, maybe he's not. He's definitely a political Messiah, though. Uh, when the scholarly community was split on whether or not he'd be a spiritual Messiah or a, a political Messiah on the, the older literature. Um, some of the stuff they find in um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, it, it's a mention of the, the coming of the Messiah is more a spiritual event of... Uh, not, Jesus still defied all expectations, uh, but it was less about being politically powerful and more about God coming in judgment and um, being the day of the Lord. Uh, so, the other argument you could do is to say, well, it's all allegory for natural evolution. is Usually the only reason to believe the earth is older than 6,000 years is so you can fit evolution into your Christian worldview. Um, I have theological reasons for, for disagreeing with that. This isn't the place for it. But just so you're aware, the other way to view it is it's an allegory. And so anywhere the Old Testament, the Genesis, doesn't fit modern uh, science and modern scientific scholarship, then it's an allegory. Now, it sounds like I'm blending into my, uh, my refutation of this idea, the reason I don't adhere to that, um, but it, it, they're kind of interlinked. That's, that is the only rationale that is consistent that you can have, is to simply say anything that doesn't match science is simply allegory. Uh, the problem is then science becomes your authority on what is objectively true. And when you're relying on the Bible to be objectively true to save you from sin and death, you get stuck pretty fast, because anywhere that science interrupts and says, well, no, people can't come back from the dead. Well, well, there, there goes your salvation. Why are you following Jesus? Why are you a Christian? Why anything? Uh, so that's the, the issue I have with the allegories. There's no clear, where to, clear place to stop. There's no textual place. It's clear that you have imagery and allegory in the prophets because there, there are markers, right? Oh, and I was taken up in a vision, or I went into a trance on the Lord's day as I was meditating. Like, it's, it's clear and obvious that this guy is having a trip 
and he's seeing crazy images that are intended to be allegorical or um, some kind of deep spiritual imagery. You know, with giant beasts or big statues being destroyed and uh, replaced or made out of multiple materials. In uh, the case of Daniel, it's obvious that it's a, that's it's a vision and it's allegory. This goes right into historical narrative. There's no clear delineation where the allegory stops and where the historical narrative begins. Everything's connected with genealogies. And it's the only genealogy we have that has ages and ages that people are born. So it says this guy lived to this many years old and at this age he has this kid who lived to this many years old. And at that age, that guy has his other kid. Not only are they the uh, ages in the lineage, uh, in the, the genealogies, but they're ages that are stacked with, uh, with when this guy lived. Not just how long he lived, but when he was born in his father, during his father's lifetime. So you can stack their ages and work backwards numerically. It's, it's weird. It's unique. And you, you, you can't just ignore that, and you can't hand wave it to say it's all allegory. Otherwise, you have no place to end to say if it's allegory or not. Um, and you, you, I love Andrew Clavin, but you can't just say, well, that's for you to decide and discern in your own spirit. Well, then you're the authority, not the Bible, not God's Word is the authority. You're the authority. I get to decide when the Bible is allegory or not. I get to decide, oh, this part's culturally relative and, uh, you know, to the day and time, and I don't have to listen to it anymore. I decide that. There's no textual evidence. There's no, uh, you don't get it from the text. There's no place you derive it from to say, oh, well, clearly it's culturally relevant to speak English and to use indoor toilets. I don't have to speak Koine Greek and go to the bathroom outside because that's how they did it in the Bible. Those, that element is very clearly seen that... We, we want to speak the language of the people. We want to, in Deuteronomy 23.12, put our feces outside of the camp in a hole. The, it sets a precedent for plumbing, right? There's, there's places you can find to go, oh, well, obviously it's okay to do these things. Other stuff that you point out and goes, oh, well, it's culturally relevant. Homosexuality is actually okay now. No, it's listed with murder. It is. I'm sorry. Those things are universal. So um, that's the one thing. Uh, another thing that comes up. So that's that's the age of the earth stuff. How are you? How do you deal with that? I say it's twenty-four hours, six literal days. Um, but I don't know. Look into day-age theory. Look into gap theory. Um, find people that say it's all allegory for evolution, and uh, see what they have to say and research it. Know for yourself. I don't care what you believe. Well, I mean, obviously, if it's not six literal days, then you're wrong. But. You know, whatever. You need to know for yourself. You have to do the research. It's your homework. It's your belief. It's your personal theology. It's your relationship with God that's at stake. Um, I, I got to fly over things. I'm, I'm going a little long. So the other thing that shows up is God repented. Uh, Genesis chapter 6, and it repented the Lord that he made man. Uh, you have an eternal being who regrets things, uh, but then other places in the Bible it says God is not a man that he should change his mind. But then Abraham barters with God. And seems to change his mind. So there's um, there's some interesting interplay there. That you have to figure out where you're at on, because uh, clearly God repents, but God doesn't change his mind. But but we can change his mind with prayer. Abraham talks to him. How do we understand that? So part of it is 
yeah, there's a little bit of up in the air where these details, like, I'm not responsible for knowing exactly how God is. I can only take the Bible at face value. Apparently, however we interact with the divine, we can change his mind, in effect. Um, prayer doesn't just change us. We can talk with God and affect reality through talking with him. Uh, that's, that's powerful. Uh, but at the same time, God isn't going to flippantly change his mind. I, I mean, people are complicated. I can only imagine how complicated an infinite divine being is, right? Who, you know, exists entirely outside of time and space and our ability to conceive reality. Uh, another thing that shows up is the Tower of Babel. This is when, uh, right after the flood, God says, spread out and fill the earth. And they go, okay, and they form a giant city and build a giant tower so God can't drown them again. And God's like, I feel like you missed the point of the exercise. Uh, <coughs> so, and he, he makes it so everybody has to speak different languages, uh, whether he changes their brain hardwiring or, you know, it, whether it happened over a period of time or that he just zapped everyone and now half of them are speaking Chinese and the other half are speaking Latin or whatever. And uh, they got to just figure life out again. Uh, whatever it is, he did it. And they get scattered abroad. Uh, another thing that's, uh, this is more on the fun side of stuff. There's a, a reference in uh, Genesis chapter 10, uh, verse 25. In the days of Peleg, the world was divided. Nobody knows what that means. Uh, it gets mentioned again in Chronicles, First Chronicles 119, in the days of Peleg. Or it was called Peleg because the world was divided in those days. Uh, no idea what that means. Uh, some people think it's a reference to Pangea when the, uh, the continents are all broken up. God maybe did that sometime later, and that's why you have humans all over the globe. Um, uh, other people think maybe it's a reference to being divided in nations, and uh, I don't know. We don't know. Uh, I don't know, and neither does anybody else. All you have are best guesses from smart people, and you always need to categorize it that way. Never take what you what is clearly a best guess and go, this is the truth, and anybody who disagrees is not a Christian and they're going to hell. That's, that's not the right way to do it. Know that your best guess is a best guess, and when, once you realize they can't possibly know that for sure, you just it's the best guess of a very smart person. It means their, their guess might be better than yours, but maybe not. It's still a guess. We don't know. And just put it in a maybe box, and it'll probably have to stay there your entire life. Uh, another one is Abraham sacrificing Isaac is a big one. Uh, theologically, God doesn't uh, appreciate human sacrifice ever. Which isn't exactly the case because Jesus died for our sins. So the, uh, the way that I understand this, and it's once again, it's, it's my best guess, because really smart people, people way smarter than me, have been discussing this for genuinely thousands of years. So... I mean, we're not going to figure it here, figure it out here on the internet in a less than an hour YouTube video or a podcast or whatnot. So, but basically, um, God wanted to know how committed Abraham was. And so he asked him to sacrifice his son to see how far Abraham would go. It's called the testing of Abraham. God tested Abraham uh, and never expected him to, uh, or the, uh, the, the book of Hebrews couches it as Abraham expected God to be able to raise Isaac from the dead because God had promised Abraham would be fulfilled on the earth through Isaac. God told Abraham that Isaac, this specific human, not any son you have, Isaac specifically, was going to be your lineage through whom all of your children's 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 children would form a nation. And so Abraham trusted God, well, he must be able to bring him back from the dead 
because he just told me this. So he, he can't be, either he can bring him back from the dead or, uh, I don't know, something. And it's, it's at that point, God stops him once he knew Abraham was going to kill Isaac. It's in that moment, the moment it was certain. He said, all right, nice. And it was at that moment then, Abraham passed the test. And from then on, that's the line that God says, I'm going to send my son to die for everybody. Because Abraham was willing to give his son to me, I'm going to give my son to him. Because that's what uh, the, um, the, there's a covenant between God and Abraham at one point. And the way the covenant goes, God makes a promise to Abraham and they, they draw a line and walk circles between an animal that's ripped in half. And the promise, the basic promise of the covenant is, if I break my promise, I will be torn in half like this animal. Abraham made that promise, and God made that promise back with Abraham, saying, I will be destroyed if I break my promise. And so it's in that covenant that God says, kill your son that I gave you, that I said I would fulfill your lineage from. And Abraham's like, well, you must be able to bring him back from the dead, because that's, that's the only way I see this working out. So that's all I've got. Uh, those are the big heady parts. There's so much in Genesis. You just sit down and read it in one flow. Read it in a, the, in a translation that you can understand. All right, find it in the message or a New Living Translation or NIV. Uh, if you can manage the King James, it's worth it because it's awesome. You'll be blessed by reading the King James uh, just because it's that uh, Shakespearean English. It's amazing. Um, uh, definitely have an easier read translation on hand because it, it, it gets sticky in some spots. I don't like the parallel Bibles. I want a committed Bible and then another committed Bible, but that's my mileage. Uh, once again, don't take my word for it. Check everything. Uh, the weird spellings of stuff I'll put down below so you can Google search it on your own later because uh, I'm not going to spell it out. It, it ruins the flow. And uh, that's all I got. Uh, yeah. All right. I'll see you next time. Godspeed.